Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of Southern California and USC. I'm Sana Mahmood, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Kevin Gramling. It's February 6th, 2023. On today's show, Turkish USC students ask for support for victims of the Turkey-Syria earthquake. I'm still trying to reach my friends and their families. We hear from the USG presidential candidates about their platforms for the upcoming elections. And hear how a teen, sheltered from her rough neighborhood in East Oakland, found escape through music. All that and more on From Where We Are, after these news headlines. The 65th annual Grammys took place less than two miles from USC's campus last night. All your favorite artists huddled up in in a crypto.com arena and celebrated the music industry. Did you hear Jennifer Hudson? EGOT, Emmy, Grammys, Tonys, what's the last one? I don't know, I can't remember, but well, I did know that. <laughs> you did know that. It's Samara crazy. Joy, a black jazz singer hailing from the Bronx, took home the Grammy for Best New Artist, owing some of her fame to TikTok. The 22-year-old may well be a Gen Z first jazz sensation. The Song of the Year, awarded to the songwriter, not performer, went to Bonnie Raitt's Just Like That. Lizzo's About Damn Time beat out the likes of Beyonce's Break My Soul and Harry Styles' As It Was for Record of the Year. Dang. I know. But Styles and Beyonce still took home hardware. Styles, Hart, Harry's, Styles Harry's House won Album of the Year, and Beyonce made history with the most Grammy wins of all time. Her album Renaissance won Best Dance slash Electronic Music Album, making 32 Grammys in her collection. Beyonce highlighted her gratefulness in her acceptance speech. I'd like to thank my beautiful husband, my beautiful three children who are at home watching. I'd like to thank the queer community for your love and for inventing this genre. We love you too, Beyonce, and we say thank you. (laughs) Want to catch a Lakers game this week? Expect to pay well over $500. Hmm. Prices for LeBron James history-making games are skyrocketing, and that's for nosebleeds. James needs 36 points to surpass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all-times point records. He's expected to overtake the record Tuesday or Thursday. California's state legislature is considering a new bill to limit concealed carrying of firearms. After a similar bill died last August, Californians can expect its next iteration to pass due to a Democratic supermajority and Governor Newsom's sworn support. The timeline of this new bill is unclear. NASCAR came to the Coliseum Sunday. It was a success with about 50,000 spectators. The preseason's clash winner was Martin Truex Jr. The series travels next to Daytona Beach, Florida on February 16th. An earthquake with an initial magnitude of 7.8 devastated Gaziantep, Turkey this morning, resulting in a rising death toll of 3,000 across Turkey and Syria. Sarah Khan has the story. That was the sound of first responders digging through the rubble after the Karaman Maras earthquake hit southern Turkey and Syria Monday morning. The magnitude 7.8 earthquake and at least 77 aftershocks have killed more than 3,800 people. The effects have reached beyond Turkey and Syria, with USC students from these countries being affected by the devastation at home. 
One of these students affected is Amir Sayani, a graduate student at Viterbi and the president of the USC Turkish Graduate Student Association. While his own family was not directly affected by the earthquake, he has friends who are struggling to reach their loved ones. I am from Izmir, Turkey, which is the uh, western region of Turkey. Fortunately, it, the earthquake didn't affect my hometown, but I have lots of friends who live in the southern region of Turkey, and I am still trying to reach my friends and their families if they, uh, if they could reach their families. Some of them, uh, for some of them, they are good, but some of them they still couldn't reach. I am trying to help to them as well, like to reshare their posts, their tweets, and we are waiting still. Creating a consciousness about this devastation is a key part of moving the affected areas forward. Freshman Alton Sermik, whose family is from East Sparta and Fitai, believes in the power of raising awareness. Awareness is probably the most important thing because it's like people don't really know what Turkey and that region particularly I feel like looks like. It's a lot more like rural and like not like as developed as the rest of like the country, which is I think the biggest issue about the earthquakes hitting that region in particular. Amidst this tragedy, Sayani pleads to USC to offer its support. We want also USC to support us, actually, as they did in like previous events. Uh, that would be so great. News is constantly coming from Turkey and Syria as casualties are calculated and damage is assessed. Those who want to donate can donate to organizations such as UNICEF at UNICEF.org and Oxfam at give.oxfamamerica.org. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sara Khan. If you yourself are interested in raising money to support those impacted by the earthquake, MENASA, or the Middle Eastern North African Student Assembly, is holding an event tomorrow between 1 and 4 p.m. where they will sell Turkish and Syrian desserts. All the money collected is going to be donated. So please keep an eye out for flyers that are going to be up soon. USG's presidential election season is upon us. Tomorrow begins the next phase of the campaign. Expect to see buttons, leaflets, and signs. So we spoke with the five presidential candidates about their platforms and how each of them planned to connect with us, the voters. Natalie Lozano reports. It's election season for USC students once again as the USG presidential candidates begin their physical campaigns on Tuesday. According to the USG Speaker of the Senate, Alvaro Flores, voter turnout has been low for recent USG elections. So, how are this year's candidates engaging with USC students and getting them to vote? We asked the five presidential candidates that same question. We begin with third-year sociology major Miko Mariscal and her DEI initiative, which aims to emphasize diversity, equity, and inclusion as a forefront of her platform. These conversations need to be had and they all intersect and flow down to a lot of our campaign points, whether it be the club resource guide or career uh, career development, as well as our trans um, our transparency tracker. And then finally, our very large one as um, Trojan Family Weekend and our funding goals. Mariscal's vice presidential candidate, third year communication major Andrew Taw, highlights the events the duo has planning to promote their platform this week. This upcoming Wednesday, we're going to be um, giving out pizza. We're going to be on Truesdale, um, hoping that people come talk to us. We're going to have like our QR code that like links to all our platform points. And also, we've just been meeting with like RSOs, our registered student organizations recently. So Fourth-year political science major and presidential candidate Aidan Ferry agrees with the notion that face-to-face communication reigns supreme. 
I strongly prefer to have an actual conversation with people. Uh, I don't like to just talk at them and assume that they got the message. I prefer to have a conversation with them and hear what they care about and they think is important. Barry's platform focuses on sexual assault prevention at USC. The most important part of our platform focuses on a real solution to sexual assault prevention at USC. Uh, we saw in fall of 2021 um, that we didn't have enough protections then. And since then, we have only had those protections uh, rolled back due to disaffiliation. In the same vein, Divya Jakatar, third-year political science student and presidential candidate, believes in serving the USC student body in four main ways. I mean, our goal is really to improve upon four areas of student life, um, which are accessibility, affordability, er, community, and transparency. Um, And then we basically bucketed our priority projects within this. Jakarta's campaign involves more personal ways to get voters engaged. We're making a lot of videos, um, some, some, you know, a little bit of lightheartedness, but also just to really engage voters because I think students um, often get disengaged with student government. Navya Singh, third-year business administration student and vice presidential candidate, also believes in hands-on engagement for voters. So this upcoming Friday from 11 to 12, we have like professional headshots because I am a Marshall student, but I feel like without Marshall, I wouldn't have gotten the chance to really like learn the importance of like resumes, of headshots, of networking. So I really want to try to implement those types of things. In terms of her platform, Singh has used her time as a senator to emphasize her qualifications for the job. So just try to talk to people um, on the day-to-day from whether that's classes or just anywhere um, tabling-wise just to see, like, why it is that people don't vote and, like, what we can do about that. Because I think that, like, talking to people, listening is, like, a very important skill that um, I've learned personally as a senator and Devin is fantastic at. Another candidate who is current USG senator, second-year political economy major Yoav Gileth, is using previous experience on his presidential platform. So our three biggest priorities in our platform uh, is community outreach, mental health, and restructuring. Uh, We also want to keep pushing for, you know, the Trojans Give Back Dying Dollar Donation Program that I founded uh, that's been able to donate over $55,000 worth of food to unhoused individuals and food insecure students. Gilead's vice presidential candidate, quantitative biology major Monica Rodriguez, is passionate about getting new voters involved this election season. For some of these people, it's their first time, like, voting in an election, and they're, like, juniors. And so, like, that really says a lot about, like, our campaign and, like, our intentions to make sure that we're in, we're actively seeking out people who haven't been historically involved in making sure that, you know, they realize that they're just as important to us. As you've heard, this year's USG candidates look to engage more with the student body. Only time will tell if their efforts pay off in voter turnout. Voting opens February 21st and closes the following Sunday, February 26th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Natalie Lozano. I'm Kevin Gramling. We're glad you're with us for From Where We Are. And I'm Sana Mahmood. It's 11 minutes past the hour. Coming up, The Power of Music of Keisha Cole and an interview with Arlene Getz, the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists.
That music means it's time for the segment we call Ampersand Radio. Growing up in East, East Oakland, a sheltered teen found an escape from her rough neighborhood through music. Keisha Cole's debut album, The Way It Is, served as her entry point into the hip-hop, R&B genres, and womanhood. Now, as a 30-year-old, she has, found a, has a newfound respect and perspective on the work. Dominique Fluker prepared the story. I was in the seventh grade in East Oakland when I first heard Keisha Cole's Love, a heartbreaking ballad about womanhood, discovery, and tragic loss. Cole was 21 years old, and The Way It Was was her debut album. It was released in June of 2005 through A&M and Interscope Records. I had no idea what love was back then, but Cole's brooding song seemed like the answer. What I admired about Cole's track was how you could feel her brokenness, but a semblance of hope at the same time. As a middle schooler experiencing adolescence, a budding interest in romance and general awkwardness, Cole's love seemed like the perfect entry point to intimate exploration, except for one thing. I wasn't supposed to be listening to her album. My protective parents preferred that I listen to Radio Disney, concerned about hip-hop's influence on me. But I listened anyway, through LimeWire. I would download the tracks off MySpace to LimeWire onto my iPod mini. My parents had no idea. It was the beginning of my rebellion. Cole was rough around the edges, fresh off the streets of East Oakland, not too far away from my neighborhood. She exuded strength and vulnerability through her sound and appearance. A hometown hero, she would have the responsibility of carrying Oakland on her back through gritty hip-hop beats and soothing R&B hooks. Now, listening to the way it is as a 30-year-old, I notice the cracks in the foundation and nuances that make this album perfectly imperfect. In You Changed, she decided to talk over the track during the intro. Once the talking stopped, her vocal was mixed under the beat, making it hard to hear her voice. In the initial seconds of We Could Be, you can hear static before she melodizes over the heavy beats. Although the production is rough, her vocals cut clear, transporting the listening into a chaotic world of toxic love. What I do appreciate is how the producers didn't seem to refine Cole's voice. Instead, the listener hears her raspy, raw, and authentic tones. Keisha Cole's debut album spotlighted torrid and complicated love and also served as a love letter to her home, Oakland. Her album was my introduction to adulthood, an entry point into womanhood. Dominique Fluker on Growing Up Listening to Keisha Cole.
Arlene Getz is the editorial director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. She also taught here at Annenberg. She has mentored and trained journalists around the world. Today, we are sitting down with her to gain her advice and insights on journalist safety. Thank you so much for being here with us today. So as young journalists, it seems today more than ever, CPJ's work is really more important than ever. Can you just speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's good to be back on the USC campus. CPJ's work, sadly, is more important than ever before. We're the Committee to Protect Journalists. And as our name implies, we are part of that community that looks to try and safeguard journalism and press freedom around the world. And what we are seeing is an increasing deterioration in press freedom, a growing authoritarianism around the world, and more and more attacks on the press, whether they are in the form of journalists being jailed or even worse, killed or generally harassed. And we're seeing a steady increase in that. This past year, we recorded a record number, the highest number ever in our 30 years of data gathering of the number of journalists in jailed as of December 1st, 2022. Jesus, yeah. So on that topic, um, we know CPJ recently released a report regarding the number of deaths in countries around the world. With this new information coming into light, like what are the next steps for CPJ? How has this report changed your approach moving forward? Well, we're continuing with the work that we've always done. What we discovered last year, as I said, in addition to the highest number of journalists that we've ever recorded being in prison for their work as of a particular date, we also recorded in the course of 2022, 67 journalists died during the course of the year. That's an increase of almost 50% from the previous year. And 41 of those journalists uh, were killed directly because of their work. The others, we believe they may have been killed for their work, but of course it's not always that easy to determine Mm -hmm. the motive. Mm -hmm. So we're still looking into those, but the overall total was 67 for last year around the world. Mm. Was there a specific country that these deaths were occurring more in than others? Well, the worst hit region was Latin America. Um, You know, of course, we had the war in Ukraine, which has Mm. been a terrible tragedy for obviously for the country, for the people there and for journalists. We had 15 journalists killed in Ukraine since the war started. 13 of them were killed for their work. But in Mexico and in Haiti, overall, we had 13 journalists killed in Mexico, seven in Haiti. Now, again, not all of those were killed. and We, we couldn't confirm that all mm-hmm. have been killed in connection for their work, but they may have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so Latin America was, was the deadliest region last year. Mm-hmm. So we are here with Arlene Getz speaking on her work at CPJ. Mm-hmm. Um, and moving forward and into the Russian-Ukraine conflict, We're all young journalists. We know in the future, there's a lot of us that want to be foreign correspondents. And that requires being amidst the conflict, a conflict like Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure safety in an environment like that? Well, you can never ensure safety, not in a conflict zone. You know, if if you're going to be near the front lines, you're in danger. But there are a lot of organizations um, that either give advice or training for that kind of thing. Um, CPJ, you know, has security consultants in place. We will help journalists where we can. Mm -hmm. You know, we would certainly not recommend that people go in there without hostile environment training. 
if you're a freelancer, it's particularly dangerous. So basically, don't, don't just go in and think that, you know, that there's some miraculous way you can protect yourself. If you're really going to yeah. cover the war, you're going to be at risk and you've got to follow every bit of advice that every organization in this field gives you. Absolutely. Through your education, you've been um, an adjunct professor at USC. How do you think Annenberg prepares students for the world filled with threats and danger like this? Well, I'm not sure you can ever be fully prepared for something mm -hmm. like this. But yes, I mean, Annenberg does a good job of teaching journalists what to expect. Fortunately for us, the, the United States is still, and, and North America in general, mm -hmm. is still so much safer for yeah. journalists. But we have seen an increasing number of, you know, of abuses of press freedom. Mm -hmm. We have seen an increasing number of journalists being attacked, say, while they're covering rallies or mm -hmm. perhaps being harassed by police. One of the things that the Committee to Protect Journalists does is we are partner we, we help to found an organization called the US Press Freedom Tracker and we monitor those. I mean, journalists here do have First Amendment protections. We don't see the egregious assaults that we see in other parts of the world. But we did see just this past year the killing of a, a Las Vegas reporter, Jeff German, who mm. was killed after he'd done some investigative work. And um, and we also some years ago in 2018, we saw the shootings of the Capital Gazette journalists yeah. at, in Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah. Five people were killed there. Four of them were journalists, all directly related to their work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that wasn't government inspired but or, or sort of orchestrated by the government, as you would see in, in other mm -hmm. authoritarian countries. But nonetheless, it shows the kind of dangerous work yes. that journalists are, do that are doing here and journalists here are vulnerable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have here today. Thank you so much to Arlene Getz for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Valeria Diaz and Clemence Fenyot produced today's show. We had help from Nina Muthdath, Dana Hammerstrom, Jason Pham, Jack Smith, Lexi Klein. Our board operator is Fernando Sanfuegos. Our live stream manager, Rebecca Zwao, and Derek Renfrau composed our theme music. We are also streaming live on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Annenberg Radio. I'm Kevin Gramling. And I'm Sana Mahmood. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, where you are, we hope you'll join us again for From, From Where, Where We, we are. are.